Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Artist Rachel Whiteread has made casts and drawings for more than 30 years in an effort to define the space between positives and negatives, public and private, manufactured and handmade objects, always with concision, intelligence, beauty, and power. At the National Gallery of Art, an unprecedented and comprehensive survey exhibition of White Reed's celebrated career introduces a new generation of audiences to her work, which addresses how we live. In these talks, delivered as part of the symposium held on October 26, 2018, in conjunction with the exhibition, Halcyon Arts Lab fellow Kelly Ray Adams reflected on her own burgeoning creative practice in relationship to that of White Reed, examining the topics of material, surface, space, and society, and the formal as well as conceptual links among them. For artist and choreographer Tariq O'Mealy, Rachel White Reed's body of work brings to mind the intimacy of the body and its relationship to the permanent impermanence of death. In his talk during the Rachel White Reed Symposium, he discussed White Reed's practice and his own in pursuit of such questions as, how do we experience absence? And what lies within negative space? Finally, artist Ada Pinkston conducts an examination of the poetics of space and the artistic will of Rachel White Reed and other minimal and post-minimal public artworks. Pinkston's lecture also considers the future aesthetics of public monuments and memorials. I'll preface this talk by saying that its organizational structure involves some overlaps and some spirals, some inversions and some hinges. And so this, to me, actually seems only appropriate uh, given its subject. Um, when I first entered the Rachel White Reed retrospective a couple of weeks ago, I was immediately struck by the series of casts of hot water bottles glistening like oversized baubles in their vitrine created in a range of materials over a period of some years. These called out to me because I recognized in them something of my own deep fascination with the process of casting, often rendering something, something familiar and quotidian, suddenly foreign or inert, or revealing the unexpected inverse of a surface as in much of White Reed's work. Casting has a seemingly magical capacity to transform our perception of an object or surface, and thus to radically alter our ingrained understanding of both a given object and its particular relationship to space and environment. Seeing this series, I was reminded of my own early experiences working with this alluring process. I took my first casting and mold making class as a first year graduate student at the Rhode Island School of Design on the heels of five years spent studying traditional pottery techniques in Japan. Initially, I was rather confounded by the inversion of thinking that was required to plan and prepare a mold. I was accustomed to opening and shaping space using the potter's wheel, and this process instead asked me to create a case around an existing object, which could then be used to replicate that object. In this case, uh, these would be filled with clay. This often amounts to a complicated engineering exercise and likewise involves no small amount of exacting and often rigorous physical labor. 
Sometimes, as in White Reed's water bottle casts, I also experimented with using existing cases of sorts, such as gloves or balloons, and then creating molds to replicate the resulting forms. I was still a novice with these materials and processes when I first learned of Rachel's work, and I was in awe of her skillful execution of these techniques at such a grand scale, and captivated by her audacity in employing these methods. I still am. My own applications of casting have, for the most part, centered upon replicating objects I make or find, but there is a preoccupation with surface at the heart of much of my creative work. And this is an aspect of White Reed's art that resonates deeply with my own practice. In 2008, I began to experiment with laying out large, smooth slabs of clay to record human presence and activity. This initially grew out of a desire to represent practices of yoga and meditation as contrasted with typical media imagery that focuses almost exclusively on the super as superficial aspects of these practices. In creating these pieces, I realized that they themselves were conduits for contemplation due to the striking haptic experience offered by the clay when I positioned it as receptive ground. These works centered upon the imprint and touch of the human body as remembered by the clay in these works, surface was both enacting and being acted upon. One of the most irresistible properties for me of plaster and clay, uh, which likewise characterizes a range of other casting materials, is their capacity to faithfully capture surface detail and nuance. They serve as highly effective recording devices for even the most minute mark or texture as they imprint these into their own material bodies. They tell us readily about whom and what they've bumped up against. The work in this exhibition is, I feel, exemplary of this. I read these dialects of surface in all of White Reed's works, but for me, they are particularly compelling in her series of doors and windows, as in this example, entitled Spy, from 2011. In these works, the shape-shifting capacity of the casting materials tell us exactly which parts of the recorded structure were glass, which were wood, which were metal. And in some of these examples, it's even possible to tell which of the imprinted surfaces were painted wood due to the telltale brush strokes registered by the casting material. My own practice of highlighting and foregrounding this capacity for detail has more often involved creating a positive, the sole of a foot marking a smooth blank surface of clay, while White Reads is more oriented towards fossilizing existing imprints. But her focus on the minutia of texture and surface nonetheless feels familiar in intensity and refrain. I want to circle back now to the intersection of surface with space, calling attention to the practice of delimiting or indicating space via means other than boundaries or walls, which seems a poignant um, point at this moment in time here in the US. My own first attempt at this arose from the earlier explorations I mentioned related to yoga and meditation involving the very large, smooth slabs. Having recognized the potential of this surface as a conduit to heightened awareness, I began to blanket entire floors with clay, as in this example prepared for an open studio event, with the intention of shifting awareness from the space itself to its skin, and furthermore from the room as structure 
to the fleeting experiences and ephemeral moments transpiring within this container. In untitled floor 36, the existing building is itself this skin, revealing to us details of its history and bearing scars of its prior use. While I appreciate and revel in the moments of whimsy invited, invited by the fact that the hole in the floor has suddenly become instead a protrusion, or by other captured moments that reveal a reality in reverse, I am most captivated by this piece, piece of White Reads as storyteller, mirror, and historian. It is a time capsule, a snapshot of a surface imprinted by the activities unfolded atop it over a period of many years, a demarcation of space that once was. This is also true, of course, of Ghost, the groundbreaking work that garnered the artist her first nomination for the Turner Prize in 1991. This piece nods to time and life and the essence of human inhabitation in similar ways, but it does so in the round, indeed by filling the space. It delimits space even as it nullifies it, transforming it into its very opposite, solidity or at least the appearance of solidity. The work thus engages and activates space itself as content taunting us as we begin to comprehend that we have access to only the tiniest glimpse through the fragments and faint echoes of the fullness of life that previously existed where the mass of plaster now does. In my own practice, I explored alternative means of representing space with this work entitled Lohar Home, Mumbai, which I first created in the spring of 2009. This piece was inspired by a book entitled The Places We Live by photographer Jonas Bendixson, which documented the living spaces of families in urban settings in some of the poorest regions in the world. A striking fact of this publication was that all of the living spaces documented, often housing entire families, measured 10 by 10 square feet. I had seen such neighborhoods during my own travels in India the year prior to encountering this book, and I had been weighing the possibilities for creating a work that would address this, this massive issue. I applied the experience gleaned from my earlier room-sized investigation to, to this content with the hope that inviting others into the contemplative experience of moving across the outlined clay in bare feet might evoke a more tangible understanding, even if for just a moment, of this spatial reality affecting so many people around the world, as it was roughly around this time that urban dwellings of this size became the most rapidly growing form of housing on the planet. I also came across a New York Times article around this same time stating that there's more than seven square feet of climate-controlled storage space in the United States for every man, woman, and child. And this juxtaposition was utterly incomprehensible to me. Uh, and this work was essentially a means of attempting to grapple with that. So this connection to social issues and consciousness and social space brings me to my two final points, one that lives more in the theoretical philosophical dimension and one that resides squarely uh, in the physical world. Spending time of late in this exhibition, I was reminded of the Japanese concept of ma. The character for ma is depicted here alongside 
Whitebreed's work entitled Table and Chair Green, and it conveys, as I understand it, a largely indescribable fusing of our Western ideas of both place and space, replete with all of the subtler meanings we attribute to both of those words, and encapsulating even some additional layers of meaning as well. So more specifically, I feel this term can be described as po poised and pregnant interval, as the subjective character and content of a space, the dynamics, relationships, activities, and energies that breathe and move therein, as opposed to the objective container itself. Viewing Whitereed's work, I felt I was experiencing Ma incarnate, a paradox to be sure, but I felt it all the same. Her work does not, in my estimation, merely convey the nuts and bolts of a place, the standardized shells of building, furniture, and packing materials, but rather it calcifies the past action and presence they once contained solidifying their now absence. This focus on life lived brings me back to more tangible physical realities and to White Reed's overt engagement with social issues, specifically those related to changing social and economic landscapes. With Ghost, she trained her gaze on the built environment of her youth, capturing a living space that was wrapped rapidly, a type of living space that was rapidly disappearing in her home region due to government policy. And this concern was writ large in her work entitled House, shown here. For me, this is a striking aspect of her work due to my own investigations related to these issues, such as the work uh, Lohar Home that I mentioned earlier, and to other works that I have pursued related to economic realities, like this one entitled $1,276, or one month's salary at minimum wage. So this work is a collection of dollar coin replicas in unfired porcelain, presented alongside a jar of water with a piggy bank-like slit in the top, which serves as an invitation to participation um, to those who would encounter it. Dropping the coins into the water, they slowly disintegrate, echoing the pace with which the quantity, this quantity, disappears when applied to basic survival needs. Again, here, the casting process features strongly, as it was only through rigorous applications of technique and problem solving and engineering that I was able to replicate these coins with such fidelity, which I feel lends considerable strength to the work. Given its relationship to this last work, I'll close with a brief mention of the project I'm pursuing here in DC which addresses the looming issue of student debt here in the US. Uh, this is uh, a, an example of a, a sketch that I have set up currently in my studio as I'm just beginning to conceive of what the final result will look like. Um, but this work will visualize student debt as juxtaposed with material, with surface, with labor, and it will essentially um, materialize the average student debt burden for a current college student um, in a in physical space, arrayed in a collection of bowls that I've made by hand. So that will be approximately $38,000 of collected change, filling about 1,500 bowls. Um, and so before I part, I will offer you one last work, which echoes with all of these ideas of material, surface, and space. Sometimes surfaces knock into one another, 
and they all fall down and even break. Thank you very much. Wow, Kelly, that was awesome. <laughs> uh, good morning, how's everyone doing today? All right, so um, what is negative space? Uh, I would like to, to give me some space as I, go on, uh, as I guide you on this journey. Could everyone do me a favor and close their eyes for a second? or open them, maybe some people out there, I don't know. Um, and I would like you to consider, do you know what you have been? Do you know what you are not? And do you know what you will become? We can come back. So for me, do I know what I've been? I, I was a boy, I am now a man, um, kind of a nerd that is kind of cool now, I think. Um, what am, what am I not? I am not a woman. I am not wealthy. Um, I am not mean. What will I become? Still working that out. And I pose these questions to my dancers or the, I don't know, them, the people that I'm working with. And I discovered that essentially in a negative space of this question was, who are you? So when thinking about this in the context of work, uh, Rachel Wright Reed's work, uh, Whenever I look at someone's work as an artist, uh, I search for the person, I search for them. So whenever viewing a piece of any art, I'm always looking for the person who created it. There is some type of artifact, some remnant of that person. I believe and practice and interrogate the notion that there isn't anything happening outside of you that isn't already happening inside of you. For we manifest our internal selves in external ways through anything we create. As I engaged in and absorbed Rachel Wright Reed's work, I thought about the intimacy of the body in its relationship to the permanent and permanence of death. Or as Harold Kretschke wrote, the human body is epitomized by the di dichotomies of ephemerality and permanence, fragility and monument to, um, monumentality, disappearance and presence, the exterior and interior. So, what is our relationship between the body and everyday mundane items? What is the life of a chair? What is the life of your toothbrush? What is the life of, I don't know, a soda can? It, all, it makes me think of when I was a kid, I don't know how many of you have seen Pixar's Toy Story, and there's a moment where like Andy would walk away and the toys would come alive. So do these chairs or these uh, room come alive once we leave? So, and also thinking about these objects or these things in the negative space, how do these things see, support, and know? So the first slide that I'll be working with uh, with Rachel Wright Reed's work is untitled uh, 25 Spaces. And I don't know if I made this up or if this was actually in the documentary, but there was something about a sense of uh, a silent audience or an absent audience. So. There are people there, but the energy, they're, actually there's no one there, but the energy of them is. It reminded me of this quote from Alice Sibold's uh, Lovely Bones that says, bracing under the weight of it, a weight she naively hoped would, might 
lightened someday, not knowing that it would only go on to hurt in new and varied ways for the rest of her life. So it brings up this sense of death. When I was 18, I uh, lost my best friend tragically. And I remember distinctively sitting in the repast and knowing that my whole metaphysical world had changed, but the physical space was the same. So when I look at these uh, castings of the undersides of chairs and thinking of this sort of underworld, so the layer beneath what is actually happening. Um, so this particular slide says to me, what is it like to have a person disappear, but their absence be enshrined? It, and it also speaks to me of a sense of like uh, ancestry or lineage, like these things, these bodies, the, these absences start to stack up, but they continue in, uh, to persist. As Miss um, Molly Donovan took me through the exhibit, took us through the exhibit two weeks ago, um, I started to really get a sense of an arc of a life and then started to consider the, uh, the, these very personal objects that we live with every day and thinking of the intimacy of a mattress or the intimacy of a bathtub, thinking about um, what, how these objects could know you more, than, more deeply than a lover or a parent. And understanding that, that my, when I think of my body, my body is essentially my mold, my cast, like my experiences carry that all the time. So what is my body as I sit and lay on a mattress? And how does that thing carry all of the experiences of my day, my week, and my life? And thinking about that in that sort of sense of contemplation in this consistent, permanent thing that exists without me actually being aware of it. So looking at this tub and the way that it was shaped and looking at all of the things in this particular room, I was thinking of, I think Miss Molly mentioned something about how uh, it, it felt erotic. It feels erotic to cast a bathtub, a, a bed, you're nude, your body is there and it holds all of these experiences. But in thinking about that, I was thinking about also coming back to this idea of thresholds and death and transition. And I was looking at the next room. So initially these previous slides, the coloring of it is very like dark and stark. But when we go into the room of doors and windows, the, there's something, there's some sort of release, some type of transcendence. And the transition from her earlier work in the late 80s and early 90s to the work in the late uh, 2010 and 2012 in 2016 is that there was a sense of the body imprinting on top of a thing. Now, in these particular instances, the body is moving through the thing. There is a sense of looking at a door and making that door almost translucent with this beautiful kind of bluish color and being able to see what you've passed through. And to my under, best of my understanding, this work comes after Miss Rachel Wright Reed's uh, mother's death. So there was this sense of release and transcendence and moving through. So in going through 
this room and this arc of this, what I perceive to put, oh, this woman's life and seeing her stories and the personal aspects of her experience that she's moving through, uh, I begin to see like a very uh, determined and rigorous uh, intentionality in each specific thing. It was singular, it was very focused. But then there was a moment where we went into the next room during the exhibit and I could very clear as day say that she had became a parent to me because there's something about the work that the rigor became uh, not intensely focused in one idea, but it became multitasking, which I can only imagine and make the assumption of what it is to be a parent or more specifically a mother. And then even in the coloring of these particular things, there's a sense of joy, I would say, maybe I'm projecting that, but there's, it's not as stark. It, it, uh, it feels more solid and more experienced. And um, also a sense of <laughs> actually uh, an exhale. It, feel, it felt like an exhale compared to everything else I had seen previously. So in the context of this life and intimacy and uh, you know, this sense of uh, moving forward, I pulled another quote from The Lovely Bones, which I thought speaks to the uh, ephemerality of Rachel's work. It says, the lovely bones that had grown around my absence, the connection sometimes tenuous, sometimes made at great cost, but often magnificent. It says, you don't notice the dead leaving when they really choose to leave you. You're not meant to. At most, you can feel, as, at most, you can feel them as a whisper or a wave of a whisper undulating down. I would compare it to a woman in a, I would, ah, I'm sorry. I would compare it to a woman in the, in the back of a lecture hall or a theater whom no one notices until she slips out. Then only those near the door themselves. Notice. To the rest, it is like an unexplained breeze in a closed room. Thank you. Um, thank you all for coming today, and thank you, Molly, for inviting us, and thank you to the educational team for um, being hospitable to us this morning. My name is Ada Pinkston. I'm also a current Halcyon Art Fellow. Um, and I am just going to tell you, whenever I look at a piece of artwork, I imagine what, it would, what would happen if a group of other artists came into the room and had a conversation with that artist, right? So that's what I am going to do on this journey of slides and conversation. Um, so two weeks ago, when we saw Ghost, um, I immediately thought of a quote by Gaston Bacquelbarg, um, where they write in The Poetics of Space, a house constitutes a body of images that give mankind proofs or illusions of stability. We are constantly reimagining its reality. To distinguish all these images would be to describe the soul of the house, it would mean developing a veritable psychology of the house. Due to the constructions and structures of modern Western society, domestic spaces are often associated with women. However, if we look beyond that, what more can we see, hear, touch, and feel? 
Ghost as a sculptural form turns the inside of the domestic space out. When I looked at the details of this sculpture, I started humming the melody to Luther Vandross. A house is not a home in my head. Luther Vandross sings a song written by Bert Barak and Hal David that illuminates the notion of the house as a psychological space, similar to Bacalart's theory. In the song, Vandross sings, do, 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 just kidding. A chair is still a chair, even when there's no one sitting there. But a chair is not a house, and a house is not a home. When there's no one there to hold you tight, and there's no one there, you can kiss goodnight. A room is still a room, even when there's a nothing there but gloom. But a house is not a house, and a home is not a home. Further down, in Vandross's poetic interpretation of the psychological manifestation of the home, he states, I'm not meant to live alone. Turn this house into a home when I climb the stairs and turn the key. These lyrics are a reflection of how the social space of the house is not constructed without the interactions between the people in these private moments. How is the house, as an architectural form, a monument to the intimate psychological spaces of the individual and the collective. House is a monumental sculpture that also turns the inside of the domestic space out and flips the narrative of what it means to memorialize a place and time inside out as well. House is, an, in essence, a monument to the space that we call home. Like a ghost, it is also a minimalist form. And when I saw the photographs of the sculpture, it made me wonder what the memories of that place, of that, what the memories that took place in and inside of the structure that was turned inside out. In a New York Times article in 2002, Michael Kimmelman writes, minimalism, of all improbable art movements of the last 50 years have become the unofficial language of memorial art. What used to be men on horses with thrusting swords has morphed more or less into plain walls and boxes. Once considered the most obstinate kind of modernism, minimalism has gradually almost sub rosa made its way into the public's heart. And now those bare walls are blank slates onto which we project our deepest commonly held feelings. The perspective on minimalism was not always the case. Rewind to the moment in 1993 when the Kay Foundation awarded Rachel Whiteread with 40,000 pounds, double the amount of the Turner Prize for the creation of house sculpture when they nominated her the worst artist the anti-house, anti-minimalist right-wing group of people did not stop to consider how the forms of bare walls of the house could project their deepest or commonly held feelings. They were more concerned with seeing public works that were figurative and on a horse. And within a year of the creation of this monumental sculptural form to a domestic space, it was torn down. This harsh critique of minimalist approaches to public artwork happened on the other side of the ocean a few years earlier. Richard Serra's titled Tilted Ark also faced huge opposition after it was installed in New York at the Foley Federal Plaza in 1981. The controversial 120 foot long, 12 foot high, solid, unfinished plate of rust-covered court and steel was removed in 1989 after a long federal lawsuit. The sculpture is now storage 
in storage because Richard Serra will not see the sculpture installed any place else other than where it was originally designed to be. The formal elements of minimalist modern sculptures, line, color, mass, and weight are the primary fuel that drives the audience to interact with the work. Because in my opinion, any audience with an extreme aversion to a, any artwork demonstrates that the work is powerful as it evokes some type of emotional response. The Brazilian artist Ligia Clark created a series of maquettes for her fantastic architecture critters. In these sketches, she imagines how the public will interact with these large-scale abstract forms. As an artist with a background in psychoanalysis, she was focused on the relationship between the audience slash viewer slash participant and the art object. Freud and other psychoanalysts, or Freud and other psychoanalysts informed how she developed her sculptural forms that were heavily influenced by a minimalist sensibility. Alois Regal writes that all human will is directed toward a satisfactory shaping of man's relationship to the world within and beyond the individual. The plastic Kunstwollen regulates man's relationship to the sensibility, perceptible appearance of things. Art expresses the way man wants to see things shaped or colored, just as the poetic Kunstwollen expresses the way man wants to imagine them. It is the Kunstwollen, the artistic will, that shapes how the audience slash participants views an artwork and how the artwork is made by the artist. The lipstick sculpture of Klaus Aldenberg would not have existed if it not had been for the sociocultural moment of the 1960s and 70s. Oldenburg's pop art monuments demonstrated that everyday household objects and consumer desires were at the forefront of society, not the ideas of heroes or common ideals illustrated by men on horses. The concept of the anti-monument was also developed and implemented in Gordon Mata Clark's conical intersect. The form was deconstructed in 1975 as part of the Paris Biennale by two radical incisions through two 17th century buildings slated to be destroyed in the Centre Pompidou. This post-minimal critique of gentrification removed the form that was. And upon that removal, there is a revealing. The audience and ambulatory pedestrians received a new perspective in the archival forms as viewer slash audience slash participant of this sculptural form. Another successful uh, monument was the anti-fascist form by Jolshin and Esther Gertz. Here's the text from, I'm just gonna read a little bit of the text from the artist's uh, website in the interest of time. Um, in 1979, amidst the rise of neo-fascism, the city of Harburg initiated public dialogue about the construction of a monument against fascism. In 1986, via an international competition, Esther Shalev Gertz and Joshin Gertz's proposal was selected. Installed in a busy public square, the monument is a 12-meter-high column with a perimeter of one meter square and clad in lead. Residents were invited with a text translated in seven languages to ratify a public statement about fascism by engraving their names with the metal pencil provided directly on the surface of the monument. 
We invite the citizens of Harburg and visitors to the town to add their names here to ours. In doing so, we commit ourselves to remain vigilant. As more and more names cover this 12-meter-high lead column, it will gradually be lowered into the ground. And one day, it will have disappeared completely, and the site of the Harburg Monument against fascism will be empty. In the long run, it is only we ourselves who can stand up against injustice. So as you can see on the image on the bottom right, it, um, over, seven, over the course of seven years, the monument fell to the ground. And it's, uh, it wasn't a static form. It would continue to, to change, right? Um, Maya Lin's Vietnam Memorial is also a reflection of the audience participant. Ambulatory viewers can see themselves reflected in a black stone that lists the names of the thousands of people who died in the war. Text mixed with minimal form proved to be an effective approach to convey the message of redemption and education that seems to generally be the goal of more traditional public artworks and monuments. The Vietnam Memorial also fed the fuel for acrimonious debates at the time. Strong opposition led by Ross Perot and James Webb, who said of Lynn's design, I never in my wildest dreams imagined such a nihilistic slab of stone. A compromise was reached by commissioning Frederick Hart to create three bronze figurative heroic sculptures juxtaposed with Lynn's minimalist memorial. In 1982, the ground was broken and the memorial was dedicated. Today, this memorial is a site where you see the deep emotional responses of all who visit. If it had been up to the people stuck in a traditional approach to monuments, we would not have seen this memorial. And if it were not for the sheer, sheer will of the artist, Maya Lin, we would not have the Vietnam Memorial at all. I reviewed these other works, like I said earlier, to illustrate my ways of seeing Rachel Whiteread's work. Fast forward to 18 years later, in Vienna, Austria, the Judenplatz Holocaust Memorial may not have been erected if the artist did not maintain her artistic will. This sculpture is also minimal, but it also is the text and the concept behind the form that makes it so striking. It is in the center of the city and creates a monumental space for meditation and reflection, a space for the viewer slash participant to consider all of the books that have not been completed, have not been read, and never written due to the atrocities of the genocide that took place in the Holocaust. Michael Kimmelman wrote, modern artists love ambiguity and irony. Monument builders do not. The notion of a modern monument, Lewis Mumford famously wrote 60 years ago, is a contraction of terms. It is a monument if it is a monument, it is not modern, and if it is modern, it cannot be a monument. Despite the challenges to, this, to building this work, White, Rachel Whiteread persevered. Was it her artistic will as well? Um, in 1901, the Austrian art historian Alois Riegel wrote Kunst Industry. It was an attempt to characterize late antique art through stylistic analysis of its major monuments. Many historians argue that, more importantly, it is where we find the birth of the philosophical justification to the concept of Kunstwollen. Kunstwollen is 
directly interpreted as art will. It is a historically contingent tendency of an age or nation that drove stylistic developments as it relates to art, architecture, and design. Regal could claim to penetrate to the essence of a culture or an era through formal analysis of the art that is produced, or that is produced at the time. So there are these two wills of the artist. There's the personal artistic will, and then there's the Kunstwolle in the artistic movement or the artistic era. As a creative person myself, it is never really clear which one carries the most salience. Water Tower is a form that was born after White Reed considered what the urban landscape looks like in the space above, the space in the sky. The transparent material is a reflection of this meditation. It is also a large-scale transparent material, and the poetics of the space outside of and through these sculptural forms make me consider the space between the sky and the ground, the heaven and the earth. The metaphors that I associate with this translucent form is another beautiful example of how minimalism elicits meaning. Man is not only a passive sensory recipient, but also a desiring, active being who wishes to interpret the world in such a way varying from one people, region, or epoch to another, that is most clearly and obligingly meets his, her desires. The character of this will is contained in what we call the worldview, in religion, philosophy, science, and even statecraft and law. Monument disrupts the concept of monuments even further, not only by replicating the form of the plinth, the stand on which the figurative, heroic form is traditionally placed on, but by creating the large transparent resin structure that makes a viewer or participant consider the space between, around, above, and below. White Reed's work makes us consider deeply how we interact with the everyday objects that we pass by on a daily basis. The work is also a meditation of what was, what is, and what could be if we stop for a moment to consider the transparent nature of space and time, and if we stop for a moment to consider all of our senses. When investigating White Reed's work in relationship to my own, I'm also interested in reconsidering our relationship with objects and forms in public space. In particular, how does the architecture that we interact with on a daily basis inscribe patriarchy or white supremacy? In resonance, I use the transparent material of plexiglass coupled with hints of color. A performance took place inside of the space where sight, sound, and touch gave birth to the activation of three senses. In this multisensory performance, one of the points of audience engagement was the question, what gives you light? Landmarked is a series of movement-based rituals that are embodied moments of monuments, revelation, meditation, and consideration of the women who are not known from historical moments in time. The woman whose labor and work for the United States that we have today, whose names are unknown and ignored in most historical narratives of this country. These performances took place on the empty planks that were once the sites of Confederate monuments in Baltimore. These Confederate monuments are now in a private collection in Virginia and Maryland, um, but the planks still remain. So therefore, space for this dialogue is still 
important and relevant. Um, it is a common occurrence around the country for racist figures to be evangelized while the everyday person that experienced historical traumas are forgotten. Today, there are at least 1,500 symbols of the Confederacy in public spaces or across the country, mostly in the Deep South. The Civil War did not end with a Confederate victory, so why is this? I'm currently working on a project called Empty Pedestals that seeks to answer the question, what does a monument for all people look like? Um, in our technology-driven society, it makes sense for the concept and form of a monument to be crowdsourced and digital. Um, the use of a 3D printer for a large-scale monument that is a reflection of our current um, Kunstwollen. Um, so this is what I'm working on right now. Um, and I'm just going to close this talk with the fact that uh, monuments are a reflection of the space and time that we live in. Um, embodied moments of space and time through objects and the aesthetic that Rachel White Reed takes to develop monuments to what some may label banal moments in space and time is poetic. As we continue down this journey of the Anthropocene, who knows where our Kunstwollen will go, but it is clear that our human interaction, disconnection, and connection with art objects will carry through space, time, and history. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.